0: Good evening. This evening, I'm going to talk in this series about major challenges in public health, about the changing geography of ill health here in the UK and around the world. One of the things that's very striking about uh, disease is that there are very wide variations in ill health which can occur over really quite short distances, and even larger ones if you're talking about uh, large distances. Sometimes these are a consequence of the environment itself, and this is particularly true for infectious diseases, and then there's some other uh, rather obvious examples. Uh, For example, it's pretty unlikely you're going to get frostbite in the desert. It's pretty unlikely you're going to get sunstroke in a European winter. But more often, the variation points to some other major, major driver of disease. It can't be biologically inevitable if neighbouring areas have very different experience of health and disease. And this changing geography, or this geography of ill health, where it varies over space, varies also over time. So ill health can often move around, and we'll give some examples of that later in the lecture. Identifying this variation is uh, important for several reasons, but two in particular. It tells you something about the disease itself, and secondly, it tells you where you need to go to try and uh, prevent it. Now, over the last several hundred years, there has been a gradual shift from rural to urban living, and this reduces the actual impact of the geography itself to a fair degree, Uh, cities are more similar to one another than different rural environments. It has, however, brought a number of particular health challenges of its own, and uh, urban living, uh, as in London, where this uh, talk is being given from, uh, has particular health risks, uh, which are not so true in rural areas, uh, and vice versa. But even in... Uh, Urban areas, there can be really quite marked variation in health over really quite short distances. And I put here a rather nice uh, map done by uh, Cheshire O'Brien looking at life expectancy along different tube lines here in London. Where I'm giving this lecture from here in the city of London, life expectancy is about 86 years if I went down two or three tube stops or about 15 minutes on a bike in in any direction, north, east or south, I would reach areas very quickly where life expectancy was was, was under 80. Now, there are four major drivers of the geography of disease that I'm going to talk about. There are some others, but these are the most important ones. And I'm going to concentrate in particular on three of them the first is the geography itself the physical geography itself water land and climate and especially for major infectious diseases these are extremely important the second is deprivation and poverty which tends to cluster in particular areas Uh, And this graphic uh, depiction here by Hogarth uh, of an imaginary beer street uh, where people uh, are are drinking uh, softer liquors and Gin Lane, uh, where people are drinking harder liquors, uh, also points to uh, issues uh, that combine poverty uh, and issues of cultural and social behaviours. The third thing is the age structure, because the age structure uh, in different parts of every country is actually quite markedly different. And because which diseases you have vary through your life, this has a big impact on what diseases you find in particular parts of the country. And finally, there are some issues uh, which are primarily cultural and behavioral, which I will talk about uh, less, but they they can be uh, very important. Now the next uh, three three or four slides are extraordinarily encouraging. There have been massive changes in the geography of ill health over the last 70 years. So this uh, map of the world shows life expectancy at birth in 1950, a point when many people watching this lecture would have been alive. Uh, And anything in yellow or very light green uh, the life expectancy was less than 50. And in the, light, the very lightest yellow colours, uh, less than 40. If we look at the same map with the same colours now, this is what has happened. A, an extraordinary improvement in life expectancy in the areas of the centre of, uh, of the globe uh, where uh, there are a combination of particular diseases... Uh, like malaria, we'll come on to, uh, but also, above all, poverty. And as poverty has decreased and medical science has advanced, uh, these diseases and uh, these problems of ill health have reduced all around the globe. And we now have a situation where most places in the least uh, wealthy countries in the world, for example, in parts of Africa, parts of Asia, and some parts of Latin America, now a better life expectancy than the wealthiest parts of the world had uh, uh, relatively recently. And this continues. So this is just a uh, change in under five mortality. These are children under five from the year 2000 up to 2017, um, backward looking uh, data. Uh, and uh, what you can see on the left uh, is where we were at the turn of the century and where we've got to just a couple of years ago. Uh, And it's an enormous improvement all around the world with the problems of children under five dying shrinking gradually, year on year, and that process is continuing. I'm very confident that when people look back over these decades, they will be far more struck by this than many things that we currently consider Are very important. Now, what has caused this is many different things, some of which are to do with medical science, improved drugs, improved vaccines, improved diagnostics, but also reductions in poverty, better diet, clean water, preventing major diseases like malaria with things like bed nets, uh, antibiotics. These are things which have transformed uh, the probability of people surviving. Uh, in particular geographical areas where previously uh, their survival rates were much lower. And this has even wider societal and economic implications than just the health. Uh, For example, when child mortality drops with a delay, then the fertility, the number of children born per woman, also drops. And on the left, what we have is the fertility rate uh, in in 1950 all around the globe, and everywhere in dark red has a rate of more than four children per mother. On the right, what you see is, as a result in part of uh, improvements in poverty, in part of education, particularly female education, and in large part because of reductions in mortality in uh, childhood, fertility rates have dropped everywhere as mothers choose to have fewer children. And all the, uh, the places in the world in yellow have a rate of fertility which is actually below the replacement rate of two. What this means is that within the lifetime of many people watching this lecture, we will for the first time pass the point when fewer children are born Uh, than the replacement rate, and the population of the human population of the globe uh, will stabilise. Another extraordinary change. And for those who are interested, I've done a full lecture on demography and how that is changing, because that will have profound implications in every part of the world. The change in child mortality has happened everywhere, and uh, the UK is one of the places, in fact, it happened earliest. These maps show change in infant mortality up to one year old between 1850s and the 1910s. And there are two things I think it's worth seeing on this map, the first of which is this change has happened all across the country, But the second is that there are particular areas of the country uh, and they're highlighted here in red on the left where there was a rate of mortality from children of over 180 uh, per thousand born uh, and slightly lighter colors on the right. And when we come on to looking at the geography of ill health in the UK, we will see that many of the same areas still have significant health challenges. Just to take us up to date, if you compare this 180, uh, you'll find that uh, we now have a death rate uh, uh, of around 3.8 deaths per 1,000 life births. A stunning uh, turnaround uh, over time. Now, the most uh, marked area where the geographical differences as a direct or indirect consequence of the physical environment are infections. And these uh, vary depending on whether we're talking about rural or urban situations. In urban centres, these are primarily, not exclusively, diseases of crowding. Diseases that are passed on person to person, directly or indirectly, and where crowding makes it more likely. In rural uh, environments, in particular vector-borne diseases, these are diseases passed on by insects uh, and other particular habitats can lead to particular infections being passed on. And these have changed over time as people have moved uh, and also with the advance of medical science. There are some infections where geography is not important, and these are primarily the ones where people self-infect, urinary tract infections, for example, where people essentially infect themselves. But very many infections are heavily influenced by geography. And we've known this uh, for some time. Uh, the first really major geographical study of infections that led to a substantial change in scientific understanding was uh, John Snow, an epidemiologist, different one from the recent series, John Snow, an epidemiologist in the, uh, in the, the, two, in the 1850s, uh, who was working here in London and dealing with the major... Uh, disease um, cholera, which was then going through a significant epidemic here in london and what John Snow demonstrated is he mapped the cholera cases onto two uh, companies which were taking water from two different sites one was taking it from the Thames, uh, one was taking it from a different site, and in the Lambeth Company, there were five deaths from cholera per thousand households uh, and in the Southwark and Vauxhall company in blue uh, there were 71 per thousand and this implied to him that where the water came from how contaminated it was could have significant implications for this disease and then he did uh, something else uh, which is better known but arguably less important he mapped cases in central London uh, around Soho uh, onto uh, a map and demonstrated that it was centered on a pump the Broad Street uh, pump uh, in Soho and he rather theatrically removed the handle uh, and the cholera uh, went away in fact it had been going away slightly before that So this was a demonstration where mapping the disease helped tell you something about it and also helped tell you what you should do about it. So that's an example of a disease that is waterborne. It's actually caught from the water. Here's uh, some diseases uh, where water is uh, more common, where water is scarce. Uh, An old fashioned notation for them, slightly out of favour now, but it it is is easy to explain, uh, is water wash diseases. These are diseases where there is insufficient water. They can include diarrheal diseases because people can't wash their hands enough, and if they get an infection, they therefore like to pass it on. It might be skin diseases such as scabies, or it might be eye diseases passed on by flies, as with this child. Uh, which cause uh, blinding diseases such as trachoma. So these are diseases where the lack of water uh, is important. Then there are diseases which are are, are acquired from the soil. It might be contaminated soil, so a very important example of that until recently was tetanus, a major cause of mortality pre-vaccination worldwide. But then there are some diseases that occur in very specific areas. For example, there's a highly lethal bacterial disease called melioidosis. And this is only caught in very specific uh, rice uh, cultivating areas, mainly in Southeast Asia. Or there are particular fungal infections you can can get from the soil or uh, other environments. And this map on the right shows where different fungi which can invade the central nervous system, the area around the brain, are found around the world. You're not gonna catch them anywhere except in the area where the fungus actually lives. So the geography of the soil will tell you something about what infections are possible. Then there are quite an important group of diseases, which are the vector-borne diseases. And historically, these are some of the most important diseases everywhere. Uh, and they remain extremely important in many parts of the world. Examples of these are diseases such as dengue, Zika, and yellow fever, passed on uh, by uh, these mosquitoes, Aedes mosquitoes, uh, sleeping sickness, Trypanosomiasis, passed on by the tsetse fly, or in different climates, these first two are mainly tropical diseases uh, in the old notation, uh, Lyme disease, which you can catch, particularly in the US but also in Europe and other areas, passed on by ticks. And if you live and spend your time in a place that does not have the vector, you will not get the disease. On the other hand, if you go into one of the areas with the vectors, then you might do. So the habitat for the insect determines what diseases you might get where. And the insects range very often depend on water environments and also on temperature. And insects themselves and their interactions with humans are very heavily affected by urbanisation, changes in land use, climate change, which is going to have a significant moving around of some of these diseases over time, but also importantly, medical countermeasures, what we can do to prevent them through drugs, vaccines, bed nets, and other interventions. The most important of these uh, is malaria in terms of numbers of people who die. Uh, and this has changed geographically significantly over time. So on the top, what we have is a map of the malaria endemic areas where there was significant malaria or had mild amounts of malaria um, uh, around 1900. And this extended right the way up, for example, the eastern seaboard of the USA, northern part of Australia, uh, quite significant parts of Europe. That's now gone. And this is a combination of uh, active interventions to get rid of malaria uh, and urbanization and changes in land use. And then on top of that, we've got countermeasures which actually reduce the impact of these diseases over time. Uh, And uh, malaria is a good example of this. So there are still around 400,000 deaths a year from this disease. But due to much better prevention and treatment, this is a massive improvement from where it was in the year 2000, uh, where just short of a million uh, people a year died. So that is an over-halving of deaths uh, over that time. So that's an astonishing improvement where a major disease has both moved geographically and reduced in its importance. Malaria used to occur here in the UK Um, And uh, what changed this is changes in land use, agricultural practice, and finally, uh, medical countermeasures. Uh, In particular, uh, wetland draining, uh, drainage and reduced cattle density but it was quite common and the areas you can see here uh, particularly in dark colours and in black were areas where there was commonly uh, the argue fever uh, which was uh, one of the common names for malaria not all of them would have been malaria but uh, quite a lot would have been and they tended to be particularly in wetland and fenland areas So that's a very widespread vector-borne disease. Some vector-borne diseases are much more geographically specific. So, for example, river blindness, the clues in the title, otherwise known as onchocerciasis. This, this blinding disease is passed on by this fly, Simulium damnosum, uh, and it injects a baby worm, and it's the worm which can cause blindness and a number of other medical problems. And it's got a relatively broad Geography, if you look at the very large area, but actually it tends to be highly concentrated in river areas. And this is a, on the bottom uh, right here in terms of the photos. This is a helicopter uh, spraying insecticide uh, to try and help control this major cause of blindness globally. A recent example where knowing about the vector was important uh, was Zika. There was a very major Uh, outbreak uh, epidemic of Zika uh, centered on Brazil not exclusive to Brazil uh, in 2015 and in a variety of other places Uh, and there was a lot of concern uh, in the UK about could this come to the UK now the first thing is the most important thing was to get on top of it in Brazil uh, and where it lived in Brazil uh, where it was in Brazil was centered on where the vectors were common the Aedes mosquitoes but it also was important to think about it in other countries. And in the UK, we assess the risk and we assess the risk of it being passed on in the UK as, for practical purposes, zero. And that was because the mosquitoes which could pass it on, uh, uh, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, do not uh, work, live in uh, the UK for any length of time. Not for, they can occasionally survive for short periods. And there is an increasing amount of the Aedes albopictus in southern Europe, but this has not yet reached northern Europe, although with climate change, that is a possibility in the future. So here, knowing about the vector tells you you are not going to get this disease uh, passed on domestically. Those are vector-borne diseases. Then there are some diseases which tend to be clustered to do with what populations live where. Uh, and the uh, most in, an example of these are the sexually transmitted infections. Uh, these tend to occur, unsurprisingly, in areas where young adults live, because young adults will be having their first uh, experience of sexual encounters generally uh, and uh, having partners uh, who, uh, until they settle down into their final partnerships. Uh, and what you can see is that in on the left here, what we have is the the population pyramid for some of the urban areas on the left for Lambeth, for example. And what this shows is the number of people by age, and you can see a lot of people in their 20s and 30s. And on the right, the population uh, for um, England as a whole. And because younger people, and I'll come back to this, tend to cluster in cities, that is where you tend to find sexually transmitted infections. For the rest of this talk, I'm going to be showing maps uh, which tend to have uh, darker colours or bright or or red colours where there is more disease, Uh, and in the case of sexually transmitted infections, the orange areas are where most of the infections are found, and as you can see, they are centred on the big urban centres, and in all of these, I'm going to show uh, beside them something which demonstrates how much variation there is across the country from on the on the left the lowest rates in the country and on the right the highest rates and a big difference suggests the geography really does make a big difference as it does for sexually transmitted infections. People often think about sexually transmitted infections as trivial diseases uh, maybe embarrassing diseases they can be very serious uh, and the, the last major pandemic we had prior to um, the current one with coronavirus was HIV. There was, in in between that, a pandemic of influenza, uh, but that really produced uh, many fewer problems. And the HIV pandemic, uh, which uh, was really going at a considerable rate at the point when I uh, was first a a doctor, uh, spread very widely around the world, but in particular uh, around Africa. And this is making the point that infectious diseases spread geographically and particularly epidemic and pandemic ones do. Now, in the case of HIV, it was a relatively slow progression. So top left is the percentage of the population in Africa who had HIV in uh, 1984, uh, then to the right, 1989, uh, on the bottom left, 1994, gradually spreading and getting more common, uh, and on the right in 1999, uh, 1999. And the places in red had a rate, of, a rate of, in the population, in the adult population, uh, of uh, over 20%. Uh, I was working actually in Southern Africa, uh, in Malawi in that, uh, that era, and very large numbers of people had HIV, and all of them, sadly, virtually went on to die. And that has changed uh, because we now have uh, better drugs, which mean that most people with HIV on drugs will live uh, a normal or near normal lifespan. So those are sexually transmitted infections. Then we move on to respiratory infections, and these tend to be epidemics and infections more likely in crowded and therefore urban environments. So this is an example from now. This is COVID this year, COVID-19. And on the top of this graph, what we have is the rates and the age standardized mortality. So this takes account of age in the most rural areas and sparse settings all the way through to the bottom, which shows urban major conurbations. The more urban the area, the more we tended to see this disease. And that is because primarily because of crowding. And these kinds of infections, particularly respiratory infections can spread very fast. So the initial spread of COVID-19 in China uh, this is data from the Chinese CDC, and on the left uh, is December the 31st, where it was, and on the right is where it had got to by February the 11th. So, only just over a month later. An extraordinary spread through China, which is a large uh, country, uh, obviously, uh, and then spread very rapidly around the world. So, infectious diseases can move geographically slowly but they can also move geographically incredibly fast, and in particular, uh, respiratory infections such as this can move at substantial speeds. Now, they do spread, but it's not random. Uh, And with very many infections, what you'll find is they tend to concentrate in areas of relative deprivation and hit hardest there and cause the most mortality there. And UK uh, COVID-19 rates very much show this. These are data from the end of the last uh, month, uh, and what they show is quite a heavy concentration, in particular around urban areas, with the rates on the left, darker colours, more COVID, and on the right was the rate of change, where brown means uh, much greater increases. So concentrating in particular areas, but in particular in areas of relative deprivation. And if you look... Uh, over the whole of the epidemic so far. On the right here, what I've shown is a map of England where uh, what we have is the most deprived areas socioeconomically uh, in darker colours. And on the left, uh, what we have uh, is the distribution of COVID. And what you can see is the dark colours for COVID and the dark colours for deprivation in urban areas match one another very well. So unfortunately, infectious diseases tend to move to areas where greater deprivation occurs. So those are the infectious diseases, and I want to move on to the uh, non-infectious or what are generally termed non-communicable diseases, because whilst infections dominate the poorest countries and the poorest regions, and historically infections dominated the whole of the world, but as the world has got wealthier uh, and more urbanized. That's been less true with medical countermeasures uh, against them. We have been uh, remarkably uh, good at getting on top of infections historically. It's one of the areas of medical science that's been most successful. Here, from here on, I'm gonna talk uh, almost entirely about non-communicable diseases. And these are just the rates of different diseases uh, that cause mortality in England. from uh, And this is recent data, uh, September 2020 and the last five years. And in the blue arrows are all the non-communicable diseases. And as you can see, non-communicable diseases are much more important in this high-income setting. Now, there are examples of non-communicable diseases where the land itself can cause disease. This is a disease, for example, a very neglected disease called podoconiosis this is something which is caused by uh, red uh, silica in red clay and when people walk around in it because they're farming in red clay in particular geographical areas for example here's a map of it in uh, Ethiopia it gets into their skin gets into their lymph glands uh, and then blocks them up and what you get is uh, significant uh, deformity and disability particularly of the feet And then there are some things like uh, water minerals, which can have a significant impact. For example, uh, fluoride uh, varies naturally in how much fluoride there is in water. Uh, And having too much fluoride, having a very large amount, way beyond what you'd have under ordinary circumstances, can be damaging to teeth but having not enough fluoride or not having fluoride leads to significantly weaker teeth you need to have the right amount of fluoride to uh, improve tooth health and this isn't a trivial thing Uh, uh, for example the most common operation on children in the UK uh, is tooth extraction and on the right what we've got is the amount of arsenic in drinking water again this would be more important in poorer areas but some forms of water are significantly more likely to have arsenic than others uh, and this can lead to a variety of cancers. I'm just using these examples where geography itself can cause non-communicable diseases but this is much rarer uh, than than our man-made situations uh, as the rest of this uh, section will show. Now the first uh, one I want to just talk about is air pollution. Air pollution causes strokes, heart attacks, Some cancers and uh, asthma attacks, a variety of other problems, and it contributes to multiple other diseases. Uh, The fraction of mortality that is caused by air pollution in the UK is possibly, unsurprisingly, very heavily concentrated where there is urban areas, particularly with heavy traffic. So uh, in the UK in particular, this will be found around Greater London. And the same would be true for very different reasons, for example, of diseases in people who are statutorily homeless. In this case, because of uh, difficulties of finding affordable accommodation. So sometimes there's there's a reasonably easily understood reason why this disease is concentrated in a particular place. But a very large number of these, the reason why it concentrates in a particular place is because of deprivation, of people uh, coming from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, and that tends to lead to multiple bad outcomes via a variety of routes. Less good diet, less good housing, potentially more dangerous or less healthy work, often fewer educational opportunities, smoking because the cigarette industry goes after the poorest, and uh, importantly for people in my profession, what was called by Julian Tudor Hart, the inverse care law, where the least wealthy people have the biggest health problems, but tend to get the least uh, interventions in health terms. Now, unlike infectious diseases, where for very many of them, if I increase my risk of an infection, I significantly increase the risk for my family, but for also my neighbours, my workmates, people I come into contact with, and this is one of the reasons why we have to treat many infections as a society, because if I increase my risk, if I take a risk, I'm taking a risk on behalf of everyone. Non-communicable diseases, it's different. If I take a risk, it will damage my health, might damage my family's health if I'm, for example, changing the diet, but it won't damage the health of people around me. It's a risk that is very specific uh, to me. Uh, And you can certainly get, with non-communicable diseases, very significant differences over really small geographies because of differences in living conditions. <clears throat> and that's always been the case, and you can often get very uh, very bad poverty and substantial wealth with the health consequences of both of those living almost side by side. There's a very famous map of London done by Charles Booth um, uh, and uh, around the same time as this, uh, this quotation from Cardinal Wiseman. The area that I've chosen to illustrate here from that map, it's well worth uh, looking at for people who live in London, uh, is the area just around next to Westminster Abbey. Uh, And this area here was known as the Devil's Acre because it was so poor. Uh, And uh, I'll just read the first half of this. Close under the Abbey of Westminster, lies concealed, labyrinths of lanes and courts, the alleys and slums, nest of ignorance and squalor, wretchedness and disease. This area here is now an area of extraordinary wealth. So first point, things can change over time. Second point, uh, that these things can be very close to one another. So in yellow here, Booth has colored in the areas where the wealthiest people lived. Uh, Red was the middling uh, wealthy people and black and dark blue uh, were the poorest and living one street away from one another with very different experiences of disease. But this continues. This is not a historical uh, issue. This continues to date. So going back on the right to the map of deprivation, if you look at under-75 mortality, so these are people who are dying before you would normally expect an adult to die in 2020 in a high-income country, what you can see is the orange areas and the dark orange areas, which are where the highest rates of under-75 mortality, premature mortality are, map very, very closely onto areas of deprivation. And the more granular the data, the more you drill down on the maps, so stop lumping together huge areas and go down to narrow areas, the more you see the deprivation really concentrates. There is poverty everywhere, there is deprivation everywhere, there always has been, but it concentrates in particular areas, and those are the areas where you find very many of the diseases. Some of these are man-made. So if we look, for example, again, at relative deprivation on the left and smoking prevalence on the right, what you can see uh, is that the cigarette industry, uh, which will kill very many of its customers, goes to the least wealthy areas to get their profits. And the result of that uh, is inevitable. Again, looking uh, on the uh, right, smoking prevalence. On the left, respiratory diseases. And I could show the same map for lung cancer, the most common causes of cancer mortality. Uh, show the same map for many other diseases. Smoking causes very many problems, and it's because the smoking, and they tend to be concentrated in the poorer areas, in large part because the cigarette industry goes to the poorest to make their profits. And you can see this also is important for cardiovascular disease, heart disease and stroke, for example. And this varies very largely across the UK, uh, and the rates are very substantial, uh, particularly in younger people. Uh, The variation is very substantial. So, for example, 138 per 100,000 in Glasgow compared to uh, 39 per 100,000 in parts of Hampshire. Then uh, here's a map of diseases, deaths due to liver disease. Again, very significant variation around the country. Now, this is not straightforwardly about income. In fact, uh, in the UK, generally people who are wealthier uh, are more likely to drink alcohol than people who are less wealthy. But behaviours... A variety of other things, particular drinking patterns, can be associated with significant liver disease, and this is highly concentrated, as you can see uh, on this map. What this tells you is these are the places you need to go to try and uh, prevent these diseases and to treat them. Obesity, a major driver of very many diseases, and this unfortunately starts in childhood... Here, what I've shown uh, on the right is a obesity prevalence, how common obesity is around England. And as you can see, highly concentrated. And on the left, I've shown a map of fast food outlets. Now, there isn't a straight causality between these two, but what you can see is highly concentrated and they overlap very substantially. So the map is telling you something. It's telling you where you should go and arguably it's telling you what you should do. Slightly different pattern for diabetes, but again, highly concentrated in particular areas, and this tends to be associated particularly with adult uh, obesity. There are other other, other issues uh, for type two diabetes, which is the commonest form of diabetes. Again, concentrated in particular areas of the country. And then there are some risk factors that we know are serious problems. And one that I think is particularly tragic is smoking in pregnancy. It's one of the most avoidable causes of stillbirth, prematurity, which can lead to significant uh, early problems including uh, early mortality and birth defects. And again, very concentrated in particular areas of the country, colored here in red, these are the places we need to go to try and counteract this wholly preventable cause of someone, uh, of of a child either not being born live at all or having lifelong problems due to the addiction that the cigarette industry has caused uh, in the child's mother. But socioeconomic deprivation is not all about post-industrial areas and I'd just like to highlight a couple of other areas before I move on to a different subject. Uh, in uh, England, very much of the most deprived areas, the most deprived geographies, are concentrated, in particular around the coast. And on the right here, this is a more granular look at deprivation, and what you can see is it's concentrated, in all around England in coastal areas as well as in urban areas and a few rural areas as well. So uh, wonderful places, really beautiful places like Skegness, Margate, Hastings, Western Supermare, Blackpool, have very significant deprivation and they also therefore have very significant health problems. Let's take Blackpool. It has the lowest life expectancy in England and Wales, although it is improving, but it's still uh, very bad. Uh, relative to the rest of the country and even within Blackpool if you then map out the mortality rates you go for, to some areas which have very low uh, mortality rates pretty, pretty normal for the UK and green here but you also have some areas coloured here in red for those who know Blackpool this is the famous seafront just behind that Some areas of significant deprivation and some of the lowest life expectancies. The red areas have a life expectancy, male life expectancy at birth uh, of between uh, 66.6 and 73 in these data. Now, there are lots of reasons for this. I'm just gonna give uh, two. One is a general one, which is Blackpool uh, was created for a particular approach to holidaying, which has changed over time and that has made uh, it more difficult for this. And any place, it might be a port, it might be uh, an area, coastal resort like Blackpool or Skegness, which has changed its use. There are risks uh, to health. Uh, And secondly, some particular things that has led to... So, for example, in Blackpool, there are very many large houses that used to be guest houses, and these have been turned into houses of multiple occupation where lots of people come in, many of them with significant... Uh, physical or mental health problems living together and they come in and they have very significant uh, diseases which then need to be prevented uh, or treated. So you can get very strong clustering of disease because of the history of a place that's led to a change in use uh, and therefore on to having deprivation and ill health following. Blackpool remains a remarkable and beautiful place but it does have these problems which are being dealt with by the local population, I think, remarkably. And if you then look at childhood, what you can see is that the ill health effects of deprivation start really early. Just taking Blackpool, this is the obesity age, obesity rates, age four to five on the left, really not too concentrated, but by the time children get up to 10 or 11, where childhood obesity occurs, is exactly the same place as where life expectancy is poorest in the long run. The the down problems, the problems of uh, deprivation on health start in childhood and then continue to accumulate all the way through adulthood. Mapping that out, finding it, and then working out how to prevent it uh, is a critical part of public health. So those are some areas around deprivation. Mental health, uh, as well as physical health, uh, is also highly variable. This is, for example, uh, a mapping uh, of uh, a, uh, one of the uh, measures of mental health. Again, you can see it uh, varies in different parts of the country very substantially. And some of the areas it, uh, you have significant mental ill health uh, by this index are rural areas, such as uh, the, this area in Norfolk and Norfolk. Uh, the, the bulge on the right here. So this isn't necessarily just an issue uh, of urban uh, areas of deprivation. And then there's some things which are, in a sense, are surprising until you think about them. For example, here is hospital admissions due to self-harm in young people. And the darker the colours, the greater the proportion, the, the number of cases. People see per proportion of population. And on the left here, what we have is a map showing how rural an area is. And the darker green the area, or the greener the area, the more rural it is. And in this environment, what you can see is actually many of the areas where there is significant rates of self harm in young people uh, and young adults, children, older children, and young adults, are in fact in rural areas. So the idea of sort of a rural idyll, which many people who live in cities may have, uh, can often be very misleading. The next major section I wanted to consider is what happens as a result if changes our concentration of age. And in the UK, people uh, move over their life course uh, in a relatively predictable way. People tend to move into cities for university, college, or their first job. They then tend to stay there until typically they have children, particularly their second child, and then they move out again. The result of that is the cities remain forever young because they're always importing younger people and exporting older people. And then once people have left, they tend to stay out of the cities. Uh, until the next generation and their children go into the cities and repeat. And this on the right is the demographic pyramid of when it is in a life course that people in the UK uh, move, Uh, on the left men, on the right uh, women. And you can see the big bulge is between 18 uh, and 25. And that's the period when people tend to move into cities for study or work. But because of this constant conveyor belt this has very significant implications for the future geography of ill health in the UK. And this is projecting forward in time now. So just to uh, illustrate the, um, uh, the current pyramids, here we have, for example, inner city London or inner London. On the left, Wandsworth. And what you can see here, around the outside, the blue uh, sort of line, that's the overall pyramid for the whole of the UK. What you can see is a very large number of people Uh, who are young adults and on the right here the city of London uh, where I'm giving this talk from but the equation has to balance and this on the other side of the equation is Rother, the Rother Valley and what you can see here is large numbers of older people, some children but the younger people are missing because they've gone off to the city and the same would be true uh, for example in Chichester so what you see is a very significantly different age structure in different parts of the country. And what this is going to mean over time uh, is that the proportion of people who are older is getting greater. That's a well-known uh, observation. But in fact, the urban areas are going to stay pretty well the same age. And as a result, the more rural areas and the semi-rural areas in the small towns are going to get older faster than you would expect. And so on the right, on the left, is uh, the proportion aged over 65 roughly now, four years ago. Uh, and on the right, a projection through to 2039. And as you can see, really heavy concentrations, particularly in coastal areas and rural areas. And these are places it's more difficult to provide medical services. And these people, once they're in this, this environment, not a very nice environment to be in, but as they grow older, they will start to accumulate ill health, different ill health from deprivation. That's a quantity. And this is even more striking if you look at people over 85, which is where uh, many people will have significant multiple medical problems. And this is just looking at the age of the population of 85 and over. On the top left, uh, when I fully qualified in medicine, really very few places had more than uh, 3% of the population over 85, Uh, bottom left, uh, was uh, about five years ago, uh, and on the right uh, is what it will be like uh, at the point, roughly, that I and my generation retire. And you can see there that uh, in many parts of the country, particularly rural areas, more than 10% of the population uh, may be over 85 years. So this is going to be quite a challenge that we is inevitably going to happen, and we've absolutely got to address it head on. Now, the diseases of older age overlap with the diseases of younger age and of deprivation, but they have some very important differences. Uh, Here, for example, is a map of dementia. Uh, Now, dementia can be caused in younger age groups, and there is some link with deprivation, particularly in younger ages, but it is predominantly a disease of older age. And therefore, the pattern you see of the map of dementia in the UK, uh, and in England here specifically, mirrors where older people are living. So the concentration of this is in a different part of the country to the concentration of the diseases of deprivation I showed earlier on. And there's going to be a gradual shift towards of ill health towards these areas, which is wholly predictable. It's going to happen over the next two decades. And then you've got some diseases like circulatory diseases, heart, heart disease and stroke. And... they they are both affected by deprivation, so they concentrate in areas of deprivation, and they're affected by age, so they concentrate in areas of age. But therefore, the areas of the country they are include the deprived areas and the rural areas where older people live, and what they spare is the areas uh, in the big cities where there are fewer uh, older people uh, and where there is not deprivation to the same extent. So... The map of these diseases is a combination of the deprivation and the age. What we're gonna do about this in the future is something we as a society are gonna have to think about very seriously. Because whilst people who are older are going out to rural and more peripheral areas to live and to uh, have a good retirement uh, in most cases, younger people are increasingly concentrated in the urban centers. So, the age support ratio, the ratio of working age people to pensioners and to older people, is shifting very heavily. So, we're going to have many fewer young people per old person in some of these peripheral areas. And then the question is who is going to provide the nursing care, the social care support, uh, the medical care uh, in these more rural and more peripheral areas? And I think we need again, to think about this as a major policy issue, because this shift over time is inexorable. It's not something you can wish away, uh, but it is something we can try and address now. Finally, however, I'd like to finish on a uh, reasonably uh, confident and positive note. Uh, Just uh, at the beginning, I talked about how the world as a whole has had a massive transformation in the geography of ill health with rates of disease uh, going down everywhere and mortality rates going down everywhere and the age which people survive to going up everywhere and that rate being fastest in the places which had the biggest problems in the first place. In the UK we are still having improvements in life expectancy at birth And although this varies over short periods of a few years, viewed decade by decade, there have been substantial improvements everywhere in the country. So this is male life expectancy at birth uh, in 2001 to three. So this is less than 20 years ago on the left, where uh, if it's green, uh, it's below 80. If it's in its blue, it's in its 80s. And as you can see, if you look Uh, over the period up to a couple of years ago that has shifted very substantially and it has shifted across the whole country everywhere has got better even though those areas which are more deprived have taken longer and are still behind but the improvement has occurred across the whole of the UK and the same is true for women for uh, girls and women female life expectancy at birth has also improved, but from a higher base. And again, it has happened across the whole of the country. So whilst I've shown that diseases are highly concentrated, even in this high-income country, uh, due to age, due to deprivation, due to land use, everywhere things are improving if you take a long view. So to summarise, what I've discussed over this talk, which has looked at a variety of different areas, there are very wide variations in ill health, which can occur over even quite short distances. Sometimes these are the consequence of the environment itself, especially for infectious diseases, uh, but not exclusively so. And we again went through some examples of that earlier on. More, of, more often, this points to some other major driver of disease, where there is a reason why there are big differences between different areas, but it's not to do with the geography, it's to do with society, it's to do with deprivation, it's to do uh, with uh, patterns of demography. It can vary over time as well as space. So the fact that an area has got significant ill health now does not necessarily mean it'll have significant ill health in the future, and the same is true the other way around. It can, ill health can move around and we need to track it and identifying this variation whether it's in a rural or an urban setting is essential both to understanding disease but also in knowing where we should go to try and prevent disease and to cure it. Thank you very much.